Hey everyone, this is James Mackey and welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. Join us as we cover high-level thought leadership and step-by-step guides on how to make people a competitive advantage for your organization. I'm incredibly proud to be the CEO of Secure Vision, the sponsor of this show and the number one contract recruiting, embedded recruiting, and RPO firm. A thank you to our partners, Greenhouse, the hiring operating system for people-first companies, and GEM, the all-in-one hiring solution recruiters love. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. I'm your host, James Mackey. I'm really excited for today's episode. We're joined by Sam Jacobs. Sam, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here, James. I, I'm glad to be here. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy you're here, too. So uh, before we, we jump into it, uh, could you please share a little bit about your background and, and what you're doing with Pavilion? Yeah, sure. I, um, I'm the CEO of a company called Pavilion. Pavilion is the uh, largest and I would argue, of course, the best uh, premier go-to-market community for high-growth operators uh, in the world. And what that means is uh, it's a paid membership organization for heads of sales, heads of marketing, heads of customer success, anybody involved in revenue generation and go-to-market, including CEOs and founders. And we provide community, we provide events, we provide content and training. Our goal is to help uh, individual operators uh, uh, lead their best lives and and uh, and develop and build a great career, and also to help the companies that they work for, you know, sur- more than survive, of course, thrive and uh, and grow at extraordinary rates. I say in ten thousand members all over the world, we've got communities in pretty much every high growth city. I've been doing this for you know a long time, and uh, yeah, and then I also wrote a book called "Kind Folks Finish First about some of the principles and values that underpin what we do at Pavilion. And that was a Wall Street Journal bestseller and is available, as they say, wherever books are sold. Nice. For everybody tuning in, I'm a member of Pavilion. So I think uh, to Sam's point, I really do think it's the best uh, community out there for for tech. Uh, for I mean, just from in terms of everything from events, relationships, uh, guidance, education, uh, to become an effective executive uh, and meeting uh, potential customers. I mean, we've uh, actually Secure Vision, we've uh, landed a couple of customers uh, as a result of certainly learned a lot. And, um, you know, I've also been following a lot of your content on LinkedIn. For everybody tuning in, we're going to drop Sam's uh, LinkedIn profile uh, in the description. But in my opinion, I, I do think you're producing uh, the best content uh, on LinkedIn right now. It's, oh, it's, well, thanks very much. Yeah, I you know, I, I really like one of the things that I'm always talking about when it comes to like recruiting and people ops is that the best talent acquisition uh, functions and teams are, are built similarly to revenue orgs. And we need to be analytical and data driven and understand you know our, our metrics and and uh, just as much as you would in a revenue organization, but for whatever reason in, in tech, we see a lot more sophistication when it comes to revenue uh, than we see in a lot of people organizations. And I was actually I had the SVP of uh, people and talent at Talk Desk come on the show, and she's incredibly bright. It was interesting. she started off as a marketing executive. Oh wow. And then transition into people. I mean, she's crushing it. She was the first U.S. hire for TalkDesk. Wow. That's and now amazing. she's the SVP of people. And that, and they're an incredible company. So that's fantastic. Right? I mean, so it just uh, goes to show. I, I actually, I've name dropped you a few times on the show. So people tuning in, regular listeners are going to know this. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, I, I think like a lot of executives that are accountable for people, talent, anything like that would really benefit from taking a Pavilion CRO course. Oh, well, thank you. Well, it's, it's I, all, it's all translatable. I taught it yesterday, uh, talking oh, yeah. about the importance of unit economics and going through specific mathematical examples. So yeah, that's near and dear to my heart. 
Yeah, for sure. That was a, nothing short of a masterclass. That was my favorite episode for sure. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I, I guess I was not trying to do a sales pitch on Pavilion, but it just kind of <laughs> came naturally because I, I really do find a lot of value from it. Um, but anyways, I, I one of the first topics we were going to discuss is how to build profitable businesses at scale. And I know that you've been evolving in your role. And I, I feel like I've gotten a sense through your content that how you're looking at running your company has uh, evolved over the past couple of years. So the, you know, first the crazy market that we had a couple of years ago, uh, of course, COVID and the crazy market were the upswing. And now we're in this, you know, kind of slow kind of, uh, feels like a recession at least. Right. So I I'm curious to, you know, get your thoughts on, we talked about things like, you know, focusing on smaller teams, uh, finding leverage in top performers, just wanted to get your thoughts on some of the top lessons uh, that you've learned, learned recently and where your headspace is at in terms of how to run successful businesses. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, to the point it's been, uh, it's definitely been a journey and it's a journey that we're, we've all been on. And even, um, even those of us that were bootstrapped, I was bootstrapped for, you know, for the entire time that Pavilion existed through 2021. And then we raised $25 million over two years ago, coming up on two and a half years ago. And I I've learned, and, and I've also seen a lot of companies make some mistakes. The the most fundamental thing I would say, uh, which is to the point of you know your your pitch for CRO school, the most fundamental mistake I think I see is that companies don't really have, they don't quite uh, fully grasp how money is actually made, and, and what I mean by that is you know there's this function called sales, and every everybody assumes that the sales team makes the money, and. And that's not quite how it's actually generated. There's a life cycle of revenue generation that happens that begins with the product that goes to marketing that goes to then sales. Marketing and really pipeline is 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 more important. And pipeline is, of course, the atomic unit of all growth, right? It's not possible. Well, maybe it's possible, but it's not often that you can make a lot of money without ever having a meeting with your customer or talking to them uh, when they are a prospect. And so the the, the atomic unit of growth isn't isn't salespeople, it's getting a meeting. And you have to understand how do companies get meetings. And so what what how did that manifest itself over the last couple of years? Well, it manifested itself in terms of people hiring large, large teams, particularly large sales teams, before they had demonstrated that they were able to get the meetings that were required to feed those sales teams and help those people make money for the business. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. Foundationally, one of them is that most revenue models are built um, you know, uh, with the concept of sort of headcount-driven uh, revenue generation, meaning like the way that you make money in the spreadsheet is by hiring more salespeople. So logically, uh, you begin to believe that hiring more salespeople is the key to making more money. And and as I just said, that's my, not been my experience. Maybe sometimes it's it's experience in like a true enterprise sales motion where the account executive is expected to generate all of their own deals and all of their own pipeline. But most of the time, there's a whole group of people that are involved in generating meetings and turning those meetings into money. And so the, the way that companies make a mistake is first over-investing in sales teams before they've demonstrated they can generate the demand necessary to meet the needs of those sales teams. And then I think relatedly, so, so what that means in a world where efficient growth is valued is that your cost basis is too high and that you've got too many people that aren't contributing enough return. The Second and related issue, uh, which is, you know, to your point about the question of headspace and how do you how do you make sure that you grow profitably and efficiently? And and there is some idea, although, you know, maybe the research has to prove out whether it's true, but there is there is the idea that um, 
you know, you, if you want to be profitable, you're going to have to sacrifice some level of growth. And and that might be okay because the today's world is not about growth at any cost. It's about growth at the right cost. And if you're willing to do that, then the best thing to do is to focus. And that's been the, the biggest lesson that I've learned over the last couple of years is just, you know, I had this idea that we were going to build like pavilion for all different kinds of communities, for legal people and for HR people. And we were just going to be the catch-all uh, community for every kind of profession, every kind of vocation. It certainly sounds appealing on its face, but that's not really how it works. And what it did was it created diffusion of focus away from our core customer, who are VPs of sales, VPs of marketing, CROs, CMOs. And, and so that, so the lesson is, and, and, and lack of focus often translates into expense. You know, again, we're, if mm-hmm. we're talking about profitable, efficient growth, how do you do that? It's you're spending too much money because you're trying to do too many things and you should try to do fewer things and spend less money. And you should understand that, yeah, there will be a cost to trying to do fewer things. You will probably make less money, but hopefully the proportion of how much you make versus how much you spend is in line so that you make more than you spend by doing fewer things, focusing on a smaller number of customers. And the biggest mistake I see companies make besides misunderstanding how money is made is that they're just focused on doing too many things at once. Yeah. I think one of the lessons that I've learned over the past year is, um, and I, I, I'm pretty sure I heard this from you, um, was sometimes it's not it's not the right time to aggressively push for new customers because it screws up your LTV to CAC ratios so bad. There's a CAC to LTV. I can't remember which one goes first, but uh, <laughs> it messes up your ratios bad enough to where it's like you're actually you could be losing money uh, on the on the contract because it costs so much to uh, actually acquire the customer, and thus the focus shift to customer success and dialing in on that core customer base and doing everything you can for retention purposes because you know that's that's one of the the key challenges that we've had is this kind of growth of all at all costs uh, concept, which I think is really prevalent in tech, right? Um, where there just historically hasn't been a huge emphasis on sustainable growth. And that's why you see these like wild swings with headcount. Right? Yeah. I, and again, you know, a couple of things. The first is that um, nobody's at fault here, right? Like there's no, well, that the, the market is, is at fault. Yeah. But the point is like, um, there's a couple points. One of them is that the idea that you know that you're doing well, maybe your team is 10 people, mm-hmm. is not total people. The idea that knowing how to do well at 10 people means that you know how to do well at 50 people, that is one fallacy that is related to the growth at any cost mindset. The re- and the point is that you can CAC and LTV, CAC is customer acquisition cost, LTV is lifetime value. The whole point of you know what we're talking about for the audience is there's four key variables that are at play when you're trying to grow. One of them is how much you spend to acquire the customer. That's customer acquisition cost. The second is how much they pay you back on average. The third is what it costs you to service them, right? After you get the customer, you got to deliver the service and there's a cost to that. And then the fourth is how long they stick around. And the, and those four variables interconnected are what we refer to as unit economics. And the point is that those numbers, you, you might be willing in a certain time period to spend more then they might then they pay you back in one time period because they stick around. And what happens in a difficult market is if they don't stick around as much or they start paying you less, then the math of that relationship starts getting uh, funky. And what it means is that uh, you you might and, and effectively what it means is there's this concept of product market fit. And sometimes 
what is, you know, obviously it means like you have a product that the market wants and so they're buying it. And that's, that's true, but really there's a deeper level of analysis that's required, which just means not only does the market want it, but you can deliver it at a cost that works for your business. And again, that they stick around and in certain environments, you might have product market fit and in others you might not. And that's really what's happened over the last couple of years in tech, which is that when everybody's got money and everybody wants to buy everything and everybody needs to hire everybody and everybody's first focus is retention of their employees and giving them all the benefits that are possible and hiring as many people as possible, then you know your business, James, and my business might have product market fit because it's the relationship of the product to the market. Mm-hmm. Well, if one of those variables changes, like the market's down 50%, even if you've improved your product 20%, you're still negative 30%, right? And so that's sometimes, people view it oftentimes, and I, I'm guilty of this too, and, and every CEO I, know, CEO I know is guilty of sort of assigning themselves an inordinate amount of blame when things don't go well, and an inordinate amount of credit when they do go well. And the reality is that the market is the stronger variable uh, in, in both of those equations. And so, but... But perhaps the broader point is this: it is a dynamic state. It is not a static state, right? This is a system that is changing. Hmm. And when that system is changing, you might slip out of product market fit, which is not the end of the world. What it means is if you slip out of product market fit, then you're spending too much to acquire the customer relative to how much they pay you back and how long they stick around, which means you got to throttle back on how much you're spending to acquire the customer until you see those numbers line up again. That might mean building new products. That might mean focusing on... And hopefully they do come back, you know, and hopefully you can fix it so that you can lean into growth. But what, you know, we teach and what we talk about is really about what is the level of how much should you spend to get new customers based on how well things are working for your business? And if they're not working very well, then you shouldn't spend a lot of money to get new customers. Right. Like fix the model first. Yeah, exactly. And try to grow on a solid foundation. Now, it's interesting. I mean, uh, one of one of my advisors, his name is Matthew Caldwell. He built a company similar to mine, uh, Talent Solutions, like contract recruiting, embedded RPO. And uh, he recently sold it to uh, Kelly Services. Perfect timing, uh, 2021 Q4, uh, really, really great exit. He uh, he, he crushed it. And uh, one of the things that he talked about during COVID, as a recruiting company, he was able to maintain an operating income, a very consistent operating income and run a profitable company through a <laughs> incredibly difficult time where a lot of companies similar to ours went out of business uh, or sold for pennies on the dollar, right? So it wasn't really successful acquisitions, like they couldn't make payroll, right? So they had to sell very quickly. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that when he slipped out of product market fit, he was very quick to experiment with new pricing options and switch up the product offering. And so I, I always, and I, I thought that that was really cool. And the more I've thought about it though, is like, that's really challenging because you don't want to spread yourself thin or going to, if you don't know exactly if it's going to work, it's it's kind of a you know diff- diffusion of focus, as you mentioned. But I think one of the things that he mentioned is just like you got to be fast, like when when you start to lose that grip, and hopefully if you know when you have experience, right, you have a better pulse on how to do that. But uh, he was able to maintain an operating income, uh, which you know at, at future valuations, um, you know investors are looking at uh, for for our types of businesses, services companies, right? Uh, they're looking at consistency there. Um, and they consider like a lot of uh, investors will actually see, you know, consistent when you start consistent operating income is like day one of uh, of when they're actually tracking your your growth or, you know, your value essentially as a company. So um, I, I don't know if you've, you've thought much about that, but, you know, in terms of speed and pricing, like that's one thing just to open up and be honest, like 
I wish I had been faster to adjust uh, our strategy, our pricing experiment uh, with the, with the potential customers in our funnel, opposed to kind of sticking to our guns. Because I was thinking we need to be focused, stick to what we know, you know, just just deliver, deliver value. Um, but I think probably there was a middle ground that could have been achieved, and now we're doing. But I think we probably could have started doing it six months ago. Quite honestly. Well, I think it's easier said than done. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's a time I mean, like, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much. You, you, it might seem like, oh, we're just going to change pricing. Okay, for example, right? Like, right. we go into a recession, and our prices are too high. To be honest, right now, nominally. Okay, but I've got a lot of people. I've got millions of dollars, millions of dollars of people that have paid the old price. So I could go. So there's two choices, and I've. Uh, I know companies like um, there's a company called Yachtpo, which does uh, you know customer reviews like um, uh, which I'm gonna call it. Uh, there's another, there's a bunch of them. But anyway, um, there's one world where you don't tell your old customers and you just and you just lower the price for new customers. Okay, you run a big risk there. Uh, you have and, and and I run a community. You know, like I have ten thousand customers, and if I just decide screw it, you know, I'm going to lower the price for new customers, but I want to keep my old money, then all of that'll get out. All of our pricing decisions get out. And, and, and then you face the backlash of looking like a jerk. And then you're probably going to face the pressure of saying, okay, um, uh, you know, I'll lower price. Now I will lower price for you. Right. And, and if I, by the way, there was a period recently, recently where I was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm actually just going to lower prices for existing customers too. And I'll take the hit. And, um, and what you realize is, okay, well, and I talked to a bunch of people, including a bunch of members, and they said, uh, don't do that. Uh, that implies a diminishment in your perception of value. There are strategies for how to do this. You should do some research on it. So we did a little bit of research, and they're right that the, the right way to do it isn't just to lower the price. The right way to do it is to say, there's a new service level, and this price includes these additional features or benefits. Mm -hmm. But if you don't want that service level, then you can go down to this price. There, there. My point is, once you're at a certain size or scale, I, my experience is you want to be super quick, but it's not. And I've got bigger fish to fry than pricing, actually, because we mm -hmm. made a bunch of other mistakes recently. And so, yes, is speed critical? It is, but speed has to be proportional to prioritization. Right. And if pricing is your biggest issue. Fair enough, but if you're changing up the product, which is what we're doing, mm -hmm. then pricing and packaging might have to wait. I can only sequence so many big changes at a time. So, Right. Yeah. I think it was in pricing uh, more so from the perspective of holistically thinking about how you're switching up the service offering to be a compelling value proposition or better fit for the specific market. And I think it's, it's all like for my industry, it's very tight at the hip. Like we we had to really find a way to do both. Uh, as companies were cutting costs and, you know, a lot of times like recruiters were like the first to go. Right. Um, so yeah. that was, yeah, but it's, it's interesting. I mean, like one of the things that we did try and I don't know, I mean, I, I made this decision I think it was, uh, you know, sometimes as a business owner, you're only faced with, uh, what feels like shitty options. And our job is to pick the least shitty one and figure it out. Is that we're not necessarily going to be happy about it, but you do what you have to do. And so what I did initially was like, well, I don't want to lower pricing. I knew we don't want to switch up the model potentially, but I did, I hold it. I didn't do that either, but I said, I'm going to stick to the pricing and I'm going to accept that we're going to turn customers. But what I don't want to do is if I lower pricing, one of my other concerns is, is it screws up my economics when you know economics. And basically we're spinning our wheels, working with a lot of unprofitable customers 
and that's taking focus away from our profitable customers. And so I don't want to dilute focus on clients that aren't making us money. And so my my thought process was like, well, we'll take the hit if we need to do additional layoffs. As hard as that is, I think it's like mid to long term going to provide the best outcome for the company and job security for the remaining folks. So we basically just decided to take the hit. We did a deeper cut uh, and tried to maintain more profitable customers and really just dial in on serving them and retaining them. So it's just been interesting, right? Like I, I feel like over the last year, we've been thinking about so many things that historically I just didn't really have to think about before. I, which is why you gotta, you know, like I've been listening to Eckhart Tolle, the power of now on audible. And I've been, uh, uh, working out with a trainer who's like, he, he and I, t- I've been talking to my coach more often. I've been meditating. It's because this is hard. You know, that that's just, it. you're, we did a layoff too. It, it's really hard to know how deep everybody. So for example, the conventional wisdom is cut deeper earlier. You don't want successive layoffs. I did that. I think that was wrong. I think that we cut we made three decisions over the last nine months that totally messed with our growth. Uh, two of them were strategic and just our fault. And then one of them uh, was the, was this layoff that we did three months ago. The first thing we did was we got rid of these city-based chapters uh, where we had chapter heads in each geographic city. So we had a Washington DC chapter that that's what you would have been a part of James, if you're in Reston. And, um, and I, I didn't realize that they were our field sales organization. I didn't fully, comprehend it or, or internalize it. So I got rid of the field sales arm, which was hundreds of people out in geographic markets that were advocating for Pavilion that were no longer doing so. And then I got, then we had some bad data that um, that monthly pricing churned twice the rate as, as uh, annual pricing. So we got rid of the monthly option and that totally killed the funnel. And then we figured out that that was incorrect and that monthly churns a little bit more than annual, but not twice as much. So then we just turned monthly back on and now growth is reignited again. And then the final thing is we did this layoff and everybody's saying cut deeper than you need to. Well, we cut our whole B2B sales team. We should have left at least one account executive. There's a bunch, and my point is it's impossible. These are hard things to model. These are hard things to predict and to forecast. And all you can do is your best and you need to just try and be as conservative as possible. But one of the things you can't really do when you're doing layoffs is you can't cut growth investments and expect to grow. You know, it's not just going to be cross your fingers. We'll continue to grow at 5% a month, even though we don't have a sales team and we fired the head of demand gen. Well, that's not really going to work, you know? So part of it is just really, it's just hard. And you got to be really in touch with your customer and really in touch with your market. And then you... And then you got to be mindful about how deeply you're making cuts. The other thing to cut would have been our product and engineering team. And I'm not willing to do that because we only had just built them and I need a digital product. And now it's live and, you know, hundred percent of new members are being onboarded into our digital platform. But my point is like, these things aren't easy decisions. And I, I wouldn't hindsight's 2020 hindsight, certainly 2020 for me, but you know, it's just hard to know. You know, I think when we're looking at our decision making uh, and looking in hindsight, it's one thing to, to beat yourself up. Like that's obviously not productive. It's another thing, like you know, obviously being critical. And 
uh, critical from the perspective of not like critical on your yourself, but critical in terms of evaluating, yep. uh, you know, lessons learned. And, and so that's, that's really been, it's been interesting and you're right. It's like, it's incredibly difficult. I think just if you in this market, the way that I've seen is like, if you're stable, right. Um, you know, growth is great, but to me, like at this point, what success looks like is, yeah, I would love to see growth by end of year. Uh, but I think success and this is what I've told my leadership team and uh, just everyone in my company is like, look, if we're stable and we're making long-term investments right now that are going to help us to accelerate growth when the market starts to rebound, that's what success looks like. So, you know, don't, don't worry about it. If uh, we're not seeing the type of growth we were seeing a, a year or two ago, uh, it's okay. We have to adjust our expectations on what success looks like right now. Survive is the new thrive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully for not much longer, but yeah. It'll be about nine more months, unfortunately. <laughs> so I don't want. I don't want. I mean, to I'm not um, Nostradamus. I don't know shit, but right. I, because I, I, I talk about this on my podcast with AJ and Asad, uh, yeah. you know, called Top Line, and um, there, there's just a major chunk of Mark Roberts was talking about this about how there's a lot of companies that raised money that are that are you kind of white knuckling it right there. They're not able to raise more money right now, but they aren't going to run out of money to, and well, they weren't going to run out of money for a while, a while ago. Now they are going to need to raise. They're going to need to raise in the fall of this year, and they're not going to be able to. And I expect, we just heard of a company that you and I both know, James, that uh, had everybody sign NDAs and just laid off their entire engineering team, which to me says that they're going to shut down the company and give the money back that they raised. And I think that's, I think, um, I think the bottom is going to be October of this year. That will be the bottom and we will start coming back from then, but that means that we haven't hit the bottom yet. Yeah. And we've seen stabilization over the past few months. So hopefully things don't decline for us. I would say we did our biggest cuts in terms of layoffs and we saw revenue decline and uh, a lot of customers gave notice last like December, January timeframe. Uh, again, from a, a hiring perspective, we saw, I mean, you know, we had you know, category leading tech companies partnering with us that was just like slashing like huge engineering teams and uh, figuring out outsourced solutions. But yeah, I hope you're wrong. Uh, but it, it I hope I'm wrong sense. too. I, I, I hope <laughs> I'm wrong. I, but I'm, I'm planning for uh, to not be wrong. Yeah, I hear you, man. So I, I, one follow-up question I had is you mentioned bad data uh, on monthly versus annual. I would be curious to hear how that happened. I think executives tuning in would be curious to know too. So hopefully we can avoid that. <laughs> that well, I just think it, it's just like you were talking about with the speed of pricing changes and your friend yeah. that had a successful exit. Like I, I just think that um, you can... If it's it just depends what stage of growth. If you're running a large company, then 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 you probably have already experienced all of these evolutions that that you know I'm experiencing now. We're going from being small to being medium size, and um, and we're well. It all depends. In the world of startups, we're we're medium size. In the world of all companies, we're still small. But the point is that you get used to making decisions based on intuition, and then you start grabbing a little. And we just didn't have good data. Like we just did not have good data because we're using all these third-party services and we were built by non-technical people like me. And so even our RevOps function until very recently was pretty underdeveloped. And so we finally, so my point is like we saw one 
somebody saw one slice of data that was not perfectly accurate and did not fully represent the entire membership. And we didn't do a substantial analysis because mm. I was thinking, I just got to stop the bleeding. I just got to stop churn. Okay. If monthly is the thing that's, that's creating the bleeding. And it was, it's just a lot of impulsive decision-making last year. And, um, we're paying the price, man. That's all I can say. Yeah. You know? So now we, now we, for our last board meeting, we did deeper analysis of retention by cohort. That's where we figured out that monthly is 20% worse, but it's probably, I, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it's certainly three to four times more accelerated in terms of velocity. So like we're more than making up the, for ARR growth than we're losing in, um, in, in conversions. And at the same time, we, that's the same time that we did the analysis by price, because my instinct is actually always to raise the price. My instinct is always to be like, well, they're not committed enough. You know, I got to get people to be committed to my product. So I got to force them to engage. So I'm going to raise the price. And then we looked at retention by cohorts and we realized that we're at 275 a month right now. And we have 40% retention after one year at that price point and the people that pay 215 uh 90% of them stick around and so like there's it's a very obvious thing but again it's it's not that obvious actually because I can't just flick a switch and I can't go to everybody that's paying 275 and say now you pay 215 without losing millions of dollars in revenue that I need yeah. to pay bills because I'm trying to run the business for break even so long story long is it's scratch and claw man yeah, that's exactly. I mean, I have this conversation with finance at least once a month where it's like, all right, if we start out offering slightly discounted pricing, like, should we do that to our existing customers? Uh, not only to keep things consistent if word gets out, but then also maybe we're more likely to keep them, right? Uh, because they're more budget conscious. But then when we look at our PL, like, well, if we do that, like we're you gonna be in a worse position. Right. Like, it's instantly negative a hundred thousand dollars. Right. You're just screwed. So it's it's it is challenging for sure. I I mean, just to switch gears a little bit, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about just your focus currently on smaller teams, higher leverage and top performers. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Just high-level philosophy and, and maybe how you've started to implement that thought process at Pavilion? Sure. Again, it's all the same. It's all related to the same stuff, right? Okay. What's what's the what is the number one thing I've been hearing on the road as I've been meeting with members over the last couple of months? Number one thing I've been hearing is that sales development reps don't work. Outbound sales works less and less well. And it's becoming, and again, what does work mean? It means conversion rates are falling, right? If you got people on the phone three times out of a hundred a few years ago, now it's one time out of a hundred. Right. And if you were closing, the number I saw most recently is 27% of all reps of all account executives are hitting quota. 27%. That is, that means that you, that, that means that three out of four people that work for you, whose salary you're paying and whose health insurance you're paying for are not producing what you need them to produce in order to sustain your business. That is a crisis. And so everybody is looking for, well, what are the better, cheaper, paths to market? Is there a different way to get the attention of a prospect that doesn't involve a, a young, an early career person reaching out to them and then handing them off to a middle career person and trying to close that and, and having a large team of those people, right? Is there a different way? And the answer is there are different ways. They involve lots of trade-offs, right? So there's product-led growth. 
And product-led growth means that you open, you create a free experience uh, or an easy to, that your product has some applications that are free uh, or very, very cheap, but probably free. And that you're trading, putting up a gate at the front door and saying you to come through, you got to pay me money with a much larger number of people that might come through a free system. And then you can tantalize them with, first of all, you create something valuable for them. And then you put natural gates and you say, okay, if you want to use this stuff, okay, now you will pay me. Right. So it sounds good because you don't need, you know, and there the strategy is demand gen and e, you know, basically using the internet to acquire lots and lots of free people and then hoping on a conversion funnel that gets them to paying money. Sounds great in practice. Most PLG teams still need salespeople. So it's not that much cheaper. And actually, you need much larger engineering organization because they got to build because it's not a free trial. That's what, oh, I'll do PLG. It's a free trial. No, it's not. It's actually like, meaningful part of the product is free. Okay, well, you're going to need a bigger engineering team to build that free thing and your R&D costs. So when you look at public uh, PLG companies like Slack, before they were owned by Salesforce, they had much higher R&D costs and they still had expensive sales and marketing costs because they still needed salespeople to close the deals. But it's a different path. What's another path? Partnership or ecosystem-led growth where you figure out who you're going to compete against and who you're not going to compete against. And you figure out who has the same customers, but that I'm not competitive with. And you go out and you try to go to market with those people. Also sounds good. Not as transactional, not as as sort of instant gratification as outbound sales, much cheaper CAC over time, because you're going to trade, you're going to get higher win rates. You might get higher deal values and you'll probably get lower churn, but it's not, it's probably going to be nominally longer longer awareness cycles it might be shorter sales cycle like when the actual opportunity is created but like the time to get to the opportunity is probably going to be longer than outbound sales so all of that is the prologue to one of the things i've been thinking a lot about is what we did at pavilion we got rid of our go-to-market organization largely but we still maintained our vp of growth who does a great job leading teams and what we did was that we said okay we're gonna we still have pipeline that we want closed Actually, what we did, and uh, he still he hasn't closed his first deal yet, but he's gonna soon, is we went out, there's hundreds of sales executives that are out of work, executives, not just account executives, like VPs of sales, hundreds, and many of them are members of Pavilion. So we went out to one of those people and we said, will you do commission-only sales? But this person is in their 40s. This person is, you're in my age, James. And this person is a buyer that is a, is a seller that buyers want to talk to. This person used to run sales for a big conference organization. He's got a lot of interesting insights. He's a charming guy, right? So then our buyers talk to that person and they want to buy from that person and he's more sophisticated. And so the point is, can you flow all of your leads to a smaller team of more seasoned, experienced salespeople instead of thinking that you have to build a very large team of people that in today's environment, three out of four of which are not going to achieve quota. And yesterday was still only six out of 10. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've been hearing a lot about partnerships lately as partnerships being the future. And I, I just, I mean, it makes sense. I think from a cost perspective, you can get a lot higher leverage with a smaller team. I mean, it's something that I'm investing in at Secure Vision. I do sort of wonder, like, I mean, that should have been something that companies were working on all along. If you're going to do an outbound strategy, that's great. But why? I'm just wondering, it's like, there's, it seems like there's this aha moment when it comes to partnerships over the last year. But, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know if you've been hearing that too, but it just seems that 
there's this aggressive push in terms of on LinkedIn. I'm seeing like, oh, you know, 2024, it's all going to be about partnerships, right? I'm seeing a big yeah, push well, in that I, direction. I'm seeing it because for a couple of reasons, one of which I become friends with some partnership people. So I'm probably seeing it more in my algorithm. But second, the, the issue with partnerships specifically is that there hasn't, nobody knows what a partnership, we've had a partnership conversation, right? Here's a great partnership, Pavilion plus Winning by Design right? Winning by Design uh, is a sales consulting firm. They teach people how to build great businesses. They're like the McKinsey for sales. I don't want to do consulting. They don't want to do community. They are offering free courses that they've built to Pavilion members, free courses. They didn't, no licensing model. They're giving it to us for free. And they've enhanced the value of Pavilion membership. And in exchange, we want to send people their way. Yeah, and we tied at the hip. That's a great partnership, right? And 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 because because we are taking a long term view, but that requires a long term view, right? That requires uh, somebody to have a point of view that, like, yeah, it's not about like instant gratification. It's about I'm building an ecosystem. The second thing is the other reason that people have been talking about it is because look at you know Gong and Outreach and and Clary, right? Like they when you raise a hundred million dollars and when you raise all this money your mandate is I'm going to do everything. So why would you partner with anybody? I'm going to build the sales engagement platform. I'm going to build the call conversational intelligence platform. I'm going to build the forecasting platform. I'm going to do it all, right? And in a, in a tougher environment, you're forced to say, I can't do it all. I got to focus. And instead of me competing with this company, I got to partner with them because I'm not going to do the thing that they're doing. I, Meanwhile, there's like another company that we've been trying to partner with, but this person whose company is one quarter the size of Pavilion, right? One quarter, they are 25%. What they do in a year, we do in a quarter in terms of revenue, right? And he, and I said, you got, you got to give us some of your content. We're not going to pay you for it, but I promise you that we're going to put our, our muscle behind creating awareness for what you're doing. And we're going to send you as much business as you can handle. And you don't have to pay us a referral fee. And he just couldn't wrap his head around it. He just couldn't wrap his head around it. He's like, well, I don't see what the, what's the point of doing that. That's not a part. And he didn't, he, he, his idea of a partnership is you tell all your people that they can get 20% off my thing when they sign up for my thing. And I'll tell all my people that they can get 20% off your thing. And I'm like, well, that's, that's just a waste of time. That's just yeah. not creative to me. Right. I, a partnership is you are enhancing the value of my product and I am enhancing the value of your product. Not let's trade email lists and spam people. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. It's a little more sophisticated than a lot of the content on partnerships that I've seen uh, online. So, so thank you. I wanted to jump in. We have, uh, we have a little bit of time left. I talk a little bit about work um, from home. Yeah. Uh, what are you, what are your thoughts there? What are you seeing? And and I'm just curious to get your opinion. Uh, my opinion is that. It's super hard to put the toothpaste back in the toothpaste tube. I think um, I'm I'm working from home. Do I like it? There's a lot about it that I like. Yeah. Would would Mike, if you have two groups of people, one of whom is working fully remote and one of whom is working in the office, which and they're the same people, which group are you going to bet on? I would probably bet on an office. Of course, of course you would. It's a fallacy that this is more productive. That's not true. It's not more productive. It's yeah. not. It might be more pleasurable. Yeah, it might be more enjoyable. It is not more productive. It's just not. And 
that reality is something we're all going to have to grapple with. And, and we're a fully remote company. We got people all over the country. And do, do I think we're as productive as we would be if we all just came into the office five days a week? No, I don't think we would. Yeah. We, I also think the last thing I'll say, but that, that doesn't make any of this easy. Commuting sucks. You know, like if you have to trade a nice place to live for having to travel an hour and a half, a lot of people don't like doing that. And the last thing is, I just think that I think actually burnout and working from home are closely related. I think the reason people feel exhausted and disengaged is because there's no separation in their life between a place and that, you know, Howard Schultz created Starbucks because like he wanted a third place, you know, like you're not supposed to do everything in one place. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to go to a place, you know, there needs to be this separation, this psychological separation, this place where you're like, I can compartmentalize. It's not the yelling baby and the barking dog and like all of my personal life completely intermingled with my professional life. So I think, anyway, those are, I guess what I think generally speaking is that the co- there's a group of companies that are going to be started over the next five years that are going to be in office and they're going to be better positioned to the fully remote companies. Uh, I think it's, um, the way that I look at it is really just about leverage, right? I mean, companies that are that I'm competing for talent from, what are what are they doing? I mean, if they're if they're offering remote, um, then you know I pretty much do too. If I want to get the best people, if if those folks have the ability to get remote, the way I look at it, at the end of the day, it's I still would rather have if it opens me up to top tier talent. I would still rather have those people remote than maybe hire the people that don't have as many options, uh, but that would come in an office. So, and I think as a small business, it's like, you know, it's different if you're a big brand, right? And you have leverage because you could throw money at people uh, to to get them to come in office. But for where my company is at, it's something that I have to offer. I feel like I think it's 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 while the whole you know you're talking about productivity, I think it's relative to the talent you're competing for too and what opportunities they have if you if your competitors for instance are kind of on the same page and aligned from a you know standpoint of being at home then it's not like you're being any less productive than them too so it, i don't think it's does that make sense i mean i i yeah, just feel I like it that, uh i think the fundamental point which is if you want to hire the best talent you're going to have to accommodate their needs is probably true I think there's a lot of research and data that we just don't have. And I yeah. think that if you want to build a sale, a sales team, or you want to build a team of people, maybe the middle ground is you start your office wherever your best executive lives. I don't know. But I think young people and early career people need an office. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think particularly as you said, like when people are growing and learning, and I think that that's something that's often missed because since most of us, came up working in offices, we probably don't understand, maybe we don't fully grasp the benefit or how challenging it might be for people coming up without, I mean, some of like you do, but like a lot of people don't, I don't think, think about that in terms of how important that is. Graduated during COVID from college. You don't, like we couldn't show up drunk, obviously. Right. We had to shower and shave. We had to look nice. We had to be there at a certain time. And whatever you think about FaceTime or whatever, we had to stay till a certain time. They haven't learned any of those social skills. Like we don't, we don't really know what these people are. <laughs> sound like such a crotchety old guy, but 
just the basics of work professionalism have not that are conveyed, you know, tacitly. They're not they're not verbally spoken. You just watch your peers and you're like, oh, that's how I'm supposed to behave. None of that has happened for a generation of people. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it's it's definitely pretty crazy. And I think like I I do agree with you. I think in an ideal world, I would I would love to be in office. I don't think that that's ever going to happen based on the type of profile that I'm hiring for uh, these recruiters. They have enough options to go elsewhere where they're able to work remote. And so, you know, for me it's like, well, all right, I would rather have that that A player. Um, you know, I think too, it's like, as you get bigger, maybe with more structure and process, um, where roles are a little bit more, um, tighter in scope, maybe that also influences where you don't need, but somebody who's quite as well-rounded or there's more people available that could fill those positions. So maybe it also has to do with like kind of where you're at in terms of a stage of a, as a company, right? Uh, the bigger you are, maybe you can, I don't know, maybe it's just not quite as important to have that person that fits like 95% of the profile you need, right? I think we'll have to, you know, the market will tell us if it's more important to have a bunch of people that like whose raw uh, talent, raw intelligence, whatever you want to call it, is like eight out of 10, but they all work together in office. And does that team beat hmm. a group of people that scattered all over the world, but is a nine out of 10? And yeah. there's arguments for both. I, you know, that's one of the issues with the data on this topic. I feel like the data is just going to be biased. I mean, you can find studies that whatever you want to, whatever your priors are, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that's just human nature, right? We're just going to, we have our beliefs and then we're going to lean into the data uh, that, that, you know, affirms that at least that's how most people operate. So yeah, who knows? I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's at the end of the day, it's like, I gotta, I gotta follow the market. So it's regardless of whether it's true or not, or people are more productive wherever they are. I need to recruit great people. This is what the market's telling me I have to do. That's what I got to do. You know? Yeah, totally. For sure. Well, hey, Sam, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on the show for everybody tuning in. uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know you've gotten a lot of value. I think uh, the focus of this show, thinking about high, high level uh, business strategy, North Star metrics, unit economics, it's, it's whether you're, you know, CEO tuning in or chief people officer uh, or town acquisition executive, you really need to understand the business holistically in order to really drive value in your department. So it was really fun zooming out and, and getting a pulse on, on you know what Sam's doing to scale his company. So Sam, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. For everybody tuning in, we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and gained a lot of valuable insights to help guide your talent strategy. I also want to say thank you to my team at Secure Vision for making the show possible. Secure Vision is the number one embedded recruitment provider, and we are a three-time category leader on G2. Secure Vision partners with over 150 companies to provide on-demand recruiters who specialize in either tech, revenue, or GNA. For more information, you can visit securevision.io. For more content, you can follow me on LinkedIn at James Mackey or on Twitter at James Mackey DMV. We've dropped links in the description. If you want to be on our show or have any topics you'd like for us to cover, reach out at breakthroughhiring.io. We really appreciate your support with reviews on Apple Podcasts. And lastly, make sure to tune in every Tuesday and Thursday for a new episode. See you next time.